we're approaching $2 billion in profit share paid back. Wow. Last year, it was over 110 million, I know. Uh, I think it might've been closer to 130. From 1996 to about 2005, we experienced 40% year-over-year annual growth. Wow. And I can remember, because I joined in 2000, when it was a really small number, I joined at 6,700. Right. You think, oh, like on a small number, you can compound really big. By the end of that, we're getting to 50 and 60,000 agents. Yeah. And you're like, how are we doing this at this rate? <laughs> to this day, we are the largest single brand real estate company in the world. And the margin between us and number two is about, I think, 75,000 agents or more. <laughs> We stand today. The business method. With a shadow. The business method. The business method podcast. The business method podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Entrepreneurs' systems, methods, tools, and tactics. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, people of all ages, I'm your host, Chris Reynolds, and welcome to the Business Method Podcast, a podcast featuring over 500 episodes of entrepreneurs and high-performance experts dissecting their different methods, tools, and strategies so we can apply them to our businesses and lives. We've been fortunate enough to interview some of the leading experts in business and performance today. The billionaire CEO of Priceline, Jeff Hoffman, the CEO of Chipotle, Monty Moran, world's top big wave surfer, Laird Hamilton, the first black woman to build a billion dollar company, Janet Halroyd, world's top investment expert, Jim Rogers, and the list goes on and on. All of these guests you can find on the podcast backlog using Apple, Spotify, YouTube, Google, and any podcast app you prefer. Also, you guys, have you started listening to our micro high performance episodes yet? We've taken the most powerful tips and tricks from over 400 interviews that our guests have shared on how to optimize their own personal performance, and we've made them into digestible micro-podcast episodes that are just two to 10 minutes long. We publish these on Monday and Friday each week, and those episodes are labeled as HP number 123456 and so on. Those episodes are live now, and they're designed for you to consume some quick, high-quality content while you only have a few minutes to spare. So be sure to subscribe to the Business Method Podcast on your favorite app so you can get those delivered as soon as they're live. And now, let's hop into today's episode. The Business Method. Hey listeners, real quick before we get started, I wanted to tell you about our trips and adventures for entrepreneurs. We have live events in different locations around the world, luxury trips to the Caribbean, adventurous trips to knock off your bucket list, and of course some private business events as well. If you're an entrepreneur, we'd love to have you join us. Make sure to subscribe to our newsletter at thebusinessmethod.com to stay updated. And for those established entrepreneurs out there that want to be involved in a community that is curated specifically for seasoned business minds, then we have a group for you. Inside this group, we have private live events in different locations around the world specifically for our members. We get those members in a place where they can connect, collaborate, and grow their companies faster just by being around one another. We also organize private podcast viewings and Q&A sessions with some of the world's top entrepreneurs like Jim Rogers, Alex Hermosi, the CEO of Chipotle, the marketing mind behind GoPro. And as a member of our group, you'll get to hop on calls with our podcast guests regularly to ask them any questions you want. And the last benefit is access to private world-class masterminds that are specifically curated for whatever challenges you're going through at the time. Our purpose with this private community is to help you expand your network, connect with some of the brightest minds in business today, and help one another overcome business challenges faster. You can learn more about our community at thebusinessmethod.com. Remember, subscribe to stay updated. And now, let's hop into today's show. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. 
On the show today, we are welcoming an individual who has been recognized as one of the most powerful people in real estate. He is the vice president of publishing and executive editor at one of the highest rated and largest real estate companies on the planet, Keller Williams Realty. Keller Williams has over a thousand offices around the world with more than 175,000 agents working for them. In 2018 alone, Keller Williams Realty generated over $332 billion. Yes, I said billion with a B in sales. His name is Jay Papasan, and he is the vice president for Keller Williams International, a co-founder of Keller Inc. and Keller Capital. He is the co-author of numerous best-selling books, including The One Thing, which is sold uh, which has sold more than 1.5 million copies. It's been translated into over 40 languages. It has over 10,000 reviews on Amazon at 4.5 stars, and the book has appeared on more than 500 national bestseller lists. Today, we're going to talk with Jay about the principles outlined in the one thing, how he uses those principles in his life to achieve massive success, and a bit about this multi-billion dollar behemoth, Keller Williams. Jay's on the podcast. Jay, welcome to the show, and how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for that warm introduction. I always get a little antsy when people are reading my bio. <laughs> <laughs> I think we Not all do. Like, you know, most like, I think, genuine and humble people, when they hear their own bio, it brings up little like, hey, is that really me? That doesn't sound like me, the me that I know, but the world may see the me like that. So yeah, it's probably a conversation I could have with a mindset coach for sure. I know, right? We probably need to bring one on the podcast and talk about our insecurities around our own bios. So yeah. um, so I'm so glad to have you on the show today. And um, I'm a fan of yours and what you've done over the years. And I, I really appreciate the mindset you've brought to the entrepreneurial world and to other entrepreneurs out there and to, you know, I'm sure thousands of real estate agents around the world as well. Um, but before we dive in, we're going to talk about the, your mindset, the, 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 the foundation, foundational principles around the one thing. But before we do, I kind of want the listeners to get an idea about the behemoth of Keller Williams and the business model of that. If we can talk about all the little faucets that, um, you're involved in and what it, that corporation really encompasses. Sure. Uh, you know, I originally came from a publishing background. When I met right. my wife in New York, I was working at HarperCollins. We got married. We wanted uh, to migrate south, and I wanted to get back to my roots, which is more of a southern flavor. Mm -hmm. We came to Austin for a weekend and just decided to move here without jobs. So all of that to say, after about, I don't know, nine months of freelancing, magazine writing, and online writing, uh, my wife fired me from my online job. Uh, I wasn't meeting people and I wasn't bringing home a lot of bacon. Uh -huh. And I took a job at a sleepy little company called Keller Williams Realty. So what year was two, this? Remind 2000. Me. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So surprise to myself and many people like my, my career here is well over drinking age, which is not something I expected <laughs> to say. Okay. So joined, uh, in 2000, September 2nd, right? The day after Labor Day. And when I joined, I think Keller Williams was in about 30 or 40 states. We also were in Canada, but there was a grand total of 6,700 agents. Mm -hmm. And today, uh, like you don't have the most recent stats, but like when we look at our total assist associates, I think it's over 185,000 now wow. in 53 nice. countries. Wow. So it's been an exponential rocket ride. Uh, I, there were 27 employees. Uh, today, when you look at our combined companies, there's over 1,600. Wow. 
So it's a uh, it's it's been quite the ride. You know, I started as a newsletter writer too. You know, in the corporate speak, right? Yeah. Uh, with a master's degree, but uh, within a couple of years, I got an opportunity to work with Gary, and that kind of took off. So. Do you want me to give you like the brief history of just what Keller Williams is or my career in it? Like, which one do you think is better suited to make sure I'm answering your question correctly? I think a little of both. So uh, what I know of Keller Williams, it started in 1983 between um, uh, a guy, another guy named Gary, I think, and then Gary Keller and somebody... Williams, John Williams, Joe Williams, Joe Williams. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's the Williams and Keller Williams. So yeah, I'll give you the, the, Gary tells this story in the first season of our podcast, Think Like a CEO. It's just a, you know, I think a five episode where we walk through this journey. So y'all can fact check me later, but I, I broadly have the details. Um, when Gary Keller started his real estate career in 1979, he had just left Waco College. He moved, he drove down to Austin in a VW bug. Nice. Uh, there's great pictures of him with the Fu Manchu mustache. He wanted <laughs> to be a musician and he loves rock and roll, but he moved to Austin and didn't know anybody, uh, but took a job working for the uh, number one real estate firm at the time. He became their VP of expansion in his early 20s. But I think it took all of about two years for him to realize uh, when he quit for the final time, he actually quit twice. Uh, I want to, I don't, I want, I'm not going to name any names, but he just basically said, I think the problem is you think all the agents work for you. And I believe that we work for them. Mm. And so it was a very philosophical divide about mm-hmm. and that the old brokerage industry agents were kind of chattel, right? They were okay. assets. Okay. And they were kind of viewed as salespeople, not business people. Okay. And all of Gary's success came from training, coaching and teaching. And when you're a coach at heart, right, you're, it's a very different kind of approach. So he got together with Joe Williams and this was around 1982. I think your date's exactly right. And they actually started two companies. Okay. Uh, It was Keller Williams commercial and Keller Williams residential. Gotcha. And so Joe was in charge of commercial. Gary was in charge of residential and commercial didn't completely pan out. Uh, the 1986 tax act. A lot of people know that was a savings and loan bust. Uh, that took the wind out of sales of a lot of real estate in central Texas, Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could go deeply into that. It was a retroactive tax act mm-hmm. and it just wiped out a lot of people. And Joe, rather than clearing bankruptcy, kind of uh, sold the majority of shares to Gary. So okay. he could avoid that, did the right thing by his creditors. But and Gary did the right thing by his founder, like Williams is still on the name. He just wasn't a majority owner anymore. Okay. So, uh, but pretty quickly, I think within five years, they grew to be the number one company in Austin. And the first, I think, business lesson shows up. Gary was running a traditional brokerage. Mm-hmm. Back then, uh, I, I can get really into the, the weeds, but agents pay a percentage of their commissions to the broker. Right. And back then they never capped. That was okay. just normal. Uh, but right about the time of the recession, a company called Remax came to town. And yeah. back in the, the early 80s, they were incredibly, that was a very radical rebel company mm-hmm. because they were called the 100% company. And so you didn't pay any of your commissions, but you paid a flat monthly fee. And back then it was high. It was like 24 grand. So it was a lot of money for back then okay. that you would pay for the year. And But if you 
did a lot of business. It was a fantastic value proposition. And so within months, really, the recession hit, the board went from like 4,000 realtors to 1,500, and Remax swooped in and took, I think, eight of his top agents and his only employee. Oh, wow. And that's one of those moments where you have to ask, okay, I can get out of the business, right? You question whether you know, bad things happen or you can make big adjustments. And so without going into all the details, there were a series of adjustments Gary made. He pulled his remaining top people with him and said, what do you like about the company? And he put it all on flip charts and he came back uh, the next day and said, I think it's this acronym, Y4C2Ts. And okay. it's a lot, but basically it's like win-win or no deal. And at the end is success through others and everything in the middle, commitment, integrity. It was just all the things that people already said about the company. He goes, but like, let's make this our North Star, that this yeah. is who we are. And then um, he started this weird process of, back then it was revenue sharing, but what became profit sharing. He goes, let's make this truly win-win. And today, if you look at our last full year of financials for our franchise owners, mm -hmm. about 48% of the profits went back to the agents who brought in the production. Okay. And so basically, if you recruit an agent that sells real estate, that actually contributes to profit, there's a really detailed formula, you get a percentage back, but 48%. And so we're, I think, approaching $2 billion in profit share paid back. Wow. Last year, it was over 110 million, I know. Uh, I think it might've been closer to 130. So that was very, it's not as disruptive today as it was then. That was radical. Right. And he, he introduced a cap, meaning on any given year, you won't pay me more than X dollars. So okay. he fixed his value proposition. He added a new value proposition. He added a value system. And that led to all these other domino chain of, of kind of events, like your profit sharing company. So he ended up becoming an open book company. Okay. Because when you're profit sharing, people want to know that you're allocating the money. Exactly. And when you yeah. open the books, people want to weigh in the decision. So he basically unionized and we have an agent leadership council that since the mid eighties has dictated what we charge our office hours and he shares control. So like that was radical for the eighties too. Like oh. not a lot of people were doing open books and still people are very resistant to it. Having had a few of those nights myself, like, can you imagine the night staring at the ceiling like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm about to do this. Mm -hmm. uh, but what I love is the end of it. It goes like, you realize that you're truly creating a partnership close to 50-50. Right. Uh, the owners who took the risk at the first proceeds, which is why it's not 50-50, it's 52-48 when it all shakes out. But he goes, and they can make decisions for the company. You realize you cannot avoid being a training and coaching company. Yeah because you have to teach them how to think so that if they're participating in the decisions, they're making great decisions too. And like now I, I can skip over whole decades now, but like that became a foundation that led, I think from 1996 to about 2005, we experienced 40% year over year annual growth. Wow. And I can remember, cause I joined in 2000, like when it was a really small number, like I joined at 6,700. Right. You think, oh, like on a small number, you can compound really big. But like by the end of that, we're getting like to 50 and 60,000 agents. Yeah. And you're like, how are we doing this at this rate? And it was <laughs> where all of these things came together. Uh, the right leadership was in place. They were driving the agenda and the value proposition. 
Yeah. But that's who we are. We're a franchise real estate company. Uh, so we don't own all of our stores. We own some of them, right? We've bought back some regions and a few of the stores basically, but we have partners. They're franchisees, which means we have limited control. But if you understand franchising, it's just a way to raise capital, right? Right. It's a, it's a kind of way to grow fast without having to raise the capital to take on all those leases personally. Yeah. And, um, at the, to this day, we are the largest single brand real estate company in the world. And the margin between us and number two is about, I think, 75,000 agents or more. Yeah. That's so incredible. It's, it's a, we, we went into the recession, number four. And because we were built in hard times, that, that tax act is when we kind of figured everything out. We're a lean company. Uh, we came out number one and we haven't looked back. So there's a high level, right? Just a yes. few of the big pieces without going into the, like the novel version. Yeah. What would so, you ask about that? Just a couple questions. Um, the first thing is, um, so dissecting franchises real quick, just for the audience. And I just want to say this, um, McDonald's for simplicity, McDonald's is a franchise company. It basically it's like, if you want to own a McDonald's, um, you can do it. I don't know what the investment was. I think 20 years ago was like a million bucks for a McDonald's. And right. then you get to manage it. You get the systems. It's almost guaranteed success because McDonald's is always going to be busy. Um, you get the, uh, the location and you get a nice lifestyle for yourself and your family. Um, so is there a, 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 a set price for franchisees of Keller Williams? And how do you guys choose those people who to work with? Great question. So, uh, and I've got some great, we've studied McDonald's. There's some really cool stories there about uh -huh. franchising. Uh, the last time I knew, I think it was about $350,000 that we don't ask for as a fee. The fees are actually small, but we require them to have the capital they need to actually launch their business. Okay. So compared to a lot of other, like a restaurant, like you think about the machinery you have to lease for a restaurant and yeah. the FDA stuff that you have to comply with, it's much more expensive. Yes. So the biggest expenses for a franchise real estate company are going to be space and salaries. That's mm -hmm. true of a lot of service businesses, right? Mm -hmm. If you have an office lease, that's, I, I kind of look at it as dead on the business, right? Because you probably had to personally sign for it and it yeah. could be seven to 10 years, right? Yeah. It can be a long time that you're due making big payments. Uh, so that's one of those gut check moments as an entrepreneur. And then you have whatever your staff staffing costs are. Yeah. Um, we've never had a franchise sales department okay. because once Gary figured out that formula, uh, it was more about lead receiving. We didn't have to do sales. Right. And what was great about that, like when you get the right combination of value proposition, you go from being a recruiter to a selector. Okay. So I think we really yeah. try and nobody's perfect, but we really invest hard. There's a lot of people who have the cash to run one of our businesses. We're looking for the best match, right? Right. So that they really hopefully meet our values that we're aligned about where we're going. Um, and they're okay, you know, being willing to disrupt themselves. Like since Gary disrupted himself and changed his financial model, gave away his profits and a lot of his control, he's flipped that switch a few other times. Mm-hmm even after he was number one. So like he's read the innovator's dilemma and yeah. he, he is not waiting for other people to disrupt him. So the franchise side, there is a, a minimum amount for us to get into business. What you're buying as you identified as a proven model, right? So you hopefully are stepping into a much more predictable business 
than if you just started one on your own. Right. And you might know this. What are the stats after three years for most startups, like businesses? Isn't like 85% go out of business? In oh, the first yeah. Three Nine out years? of 10. Yeah. Three to five. Yeah. Something like that. Uh, in our franchise system, uh, on an annual basis, right? On a month to month, it's all over the map. But on an annual basis, I think 98% of our franchises are profitable. Wow. That's incredible. So that's a really high bar, that's, yes. which is why we usually rank very highly um, in the system. Mm -hmm. And uh, as a company, we also have been very good at avoiding litigation. Yeah. Um, real estate is a litigious thing. Yes. Uh, but because of our value system, uh, I think we've, Gary's had lawyers call him in Austin saying, my client want me to sue you. But knowing your reputation, I thought I would just pick up the phone and save everybody a lot of trouble. <laughs> That's, That's a, like, I could tell you the whole story. Like one of our realtors <laughs> sold someone a house where the school district line ran down the middle of the street. And even though he wasn't the listing agent, the listing agent for another company had said it was in the school zone across the street. Wow. So those parents got in there and they're like, their kids aren't going to the right school. And so like Gary, like the same, same principle, he goes, all right, we'll buy your house back. Uh, refund you your commission. We'll help you find your next house. Wow. Will that fix it? And knowing Gary, he actually made money flipping the house. So like it actually worked out for everybody. Wow. Incredible. But, like that's a, that's a big part of it, right? Your reputation in franchise is about how well you negotiate agreements and keep them. Yeah. And that's the, if, if there's a superpower that Gary's gotten, if you look at our agreements, our actual franchise agreements and our documents, I think he's had well over maybe probably close to 2000 professional partnerships. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know of anybody, any that VC has that, many. Yeah. that has had that many, right? It might be another franchise company. And you just think of all the lessons learned that every time you renew the documents, you upgrade them, you upgrade them. Like, what have I learned and how do we change this agreement so that we all know how to behave if things go bad and yeah. how do we behave when things are good? That is really one of his superpowers and our document is very strong. And I could tell you stories about our other, he learned that lesson by watching other franchises that had bad documents go bad. What is the best resource for somebody to study a business model like your guys's? Because it just seems, it seems like it's done so well. If, if you have lawyers calling you and say, you know, and saying, Hey, let's just handle this, you know, easily instead of going to court. Um, it's, it's phenomenal. Is there any resources out there, Jay, that is, is like, okay, we can understand the mindset, the system creation that, that you guys have set up with Keller Williams? Um, I don't, I can't put my finger on them, but okay. I believe Stanford University has done three case studies on us. Okay. Good to know. And those are in the out. public domain. If you do yeah. Stanford University, Keller Williams case study, there's one on our value system and culture. I know there's one on our profit share system and, and one on another aspect. So there's been some, instead of it just being like a brochure, Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing is like, you know, the franchise documents, uh, are available, mm -hmm. right? Those are, those are filed publicly with the state. So like you can ask for or request a franchise document and, and that, that is like, this is the whole thing, but yeah. that's like, yeah, you, you have to be the kind of person who would read like your stocks, actual annual reports and stuff, <laughs> because it's definitely in the weeds. Right. But you know, when Gary was writing our franchise document, he created a notebook and this is just good business. I thought, mm -hmm. I just love the story. He went to, he got a copy of every one of his competitors, franchise documents. And as he read through, you look up and you realize they all have like the same 15 components, right? right? So he created dividers 
and whatever he thought was the best version of some component, he would put it in his own binder, right? Mm -hmm. And then he had a few like McDonald's and things that weren't even in our industry, but how did they address those sections of a franchise agreement? And he just was trying to collect a bunch of best practices. And then he worked with a really strong franchise attorney and they crafted the original documents. Incredible. But it's like a Frankenstein. Like, what? how can I mix together the best elements of all of these? Yes. And uh, when he was doing that, he discovered, uh, you've lived in Texas, so you know Dairy Queen. Some people call them, you know, Texas stop signs, right? <laughs> they used to be everywhere. And uh, it's a story as I understand it from Gary is that they were direct head-to-head -head competitors with McDonald's. Right. And there was a time when McDonald's started putting in the playscapes and the McDonald's franchise document dictated that they could tell their franchises, you have to do this. Okay. So they were able to go in and man, that was popular because now mommy could go in, get a very affordable lunch and not worry about their kid. Right. You mm -hmm. go play in that safe thing. Right. And I can see you and boom. And that was hugely popular. Dairy queen, he was neck and neck with them at the same time. Their franchise document was weak and 90% of their franchisees said, no, we're doing just fine. Right. Wow. And that tilted it for the rest of history. Yeah. And I, it might've been Burger King. I think it's Dairy Queen though. Um, Cause that, that's the Texas stop sign. That's what I remember. Yeah. But, uh, but that's the sort of thing that happens. Like if you don't have the right agreement that anticipates where things could go wrong. Yeah. You essentially become seven years in a relationship where you're at the mercy of someone else's aspirations. Yeah. You want to grow faster, but they're fat and happy. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of our agreements have built in growth categories. And um, that was what Gary said, like around 96, he goes, all the agreements were in place. And then it was just a matter of time. You could just look at your watch and say, some percentage will default. Right. But everybody who is on that growth path, like you can just see it happening. Yeah. That's amazing to see. I, I want to talk, Jay, more about your your roles in Keller Williams. Um, okay. VP of publishing, executive editor, uh, co you know, co-founder of Keller Inc., Keller Capital, uh, VP of Keller Williams International, which is doing pretty well. Um, if you guys, what would you say in 53 different countries now? Yes, sir. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Um, so it, and it all kind of started out, you were working with Keller Williams and then, um, Gary found out that you were, uh, worked in publishing and actually worked with a publishing company that published one of his books in the past. Is that correct? Is that how it, he, uh, it's very close. Okay. He, uh, when he was originally sitting down with our old partner, Dave Jinx, Dave Jinx passed away this last year. Uh, Sorry, he retired you. around 2009, okay. but, uh, he and I, we were the three of us were the original band of writers. Okay. When they were preparing to write the millionaire real estate agent, which was our first book, um, they went out to the bookstore and they picked out five books that they really loved how they were put together and how they were organized. And these were not books that they had published. Um, uh, but one was, uh, like the millionaire next door. If you've ever read that. Yeah. And, you know, I remember Gary saying, I love this book because, they went out and they did research. They studied what, what did all these people have in common? And that seems like a great way to get to the truth versus here's my opinion. Mm -hmm. And then we all know how bias works. Let's go look for it in the world. Mm -hmm. And two of the five books, one was a, a muscle 
book called Body for Life by okay. Bill Phillips. And that was a book that I'd been an editor on and had gone on, I think it sold worldwide over 6 million copies. Wow. Uh, it, at the time, I didn't appreciate it when I was a lowly assistant editor. And it was just a lot of hard work with a very strange guy that I didn't know that world. Much later, I appreciated what I'd been on the journey for. And I also got the privilege of working with Mia Hamm on her book called Go for the Goal. And like he's, he starts laying these out. like, And it's like our first talk about publishing. I Literally in the bathroom, I said, I hear you're writing a book. Uh-huh. This is back when we only had like, you know, 30 employees. So you just bump into the founder, right? Yeah. And I was like, do you remember I used to work in HarperCollins? And he called me in his office, kind of laid out this vision for a book and said, here are the books we're modeling on. And I was like, well, I published those two. And like showed him my name and the acknowledgements. Uh-huh. And that was like, literally, he called my boss and said, good news or bad news? And he's like, you lost one of your employees. The good news is they just got promoted. <laughs> and... um <laughs> So like I, he, we still went through a process. Like I can remember like, where do you want to be in five years? We went through this deep process. Cause I remember telling him in five years, I dreamed of making a hundred thousand dollars. Like that's like yeah. everybody's first big financial place of like six that figures. I'm successful. Yeah, right. Exactly. But uh, I remember like, I really had to swallow before I said it out loud, mm-hmm. but we did this little discovery to make sure that what he was inviting me to do was help him write this book with Dave Jinx was something that was, in my future. And then we wrote it in a hundred days. Wow. Nice. So that's really like, I did a bunch of odd jobs at KW. I just thought, wow, this is a cool, fast growing entrepreneurial place for a writer. I've always been attracted to entrepreneurs. Yeah. So I like the energy, even though I had no clue what I was going to do, but boom, here it is. I can work on books, which is, I thought I wouldn't get to do when I left New York city. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the millionaire real estate agent went on to sell, uh, it sold to date over 1.6 million copies. Nice. And it's by far the best selling book in the real estate career category. Yeah. Um, we had no idea at the time that, you know, we had a message that it had found its moment in time. Real estate salespeople wanted to be seen as business people. And it's a business book. It's how to run a service business. That's what Gary's been coaching to for all these years. So yeah. that was our start. Um, I did not want my name on the book because I felt more like an editor or a ghostwriter and it didn't feel right. But Gary's like, he didn't think that was an integrity. He goes, you were a real contributor. Your name's going on the cover. <laughs> Thank God he did. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you look up and then we started, Gary's always thinking franchises. How do we franchise this? So we wrote the millionaire real estate investor. And this time I was a full on co-author. Like I did two years of research with him. Like I was now, not just learning, I was also teaching. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we've gone on to write, I guess, six best-selling books. Yeah. Um, so I guess within about three years, he, I, I coached him to own the copyrights in an, in an entity. I'd seen that from Bill Phillips on Body for Life. And when I'd asked him why, he goes, well, you're gonna, the publisher will pay the royalties to the entity, but since I own the entity, I can share that with whomever I please for as long as I want. Right. And uh, it just gave you another layer of control. So we did that for Gary. And after a few years, Gary gave me and Dave opportunities to be co-owners and partners with him in that. We earned in. And then we kept writing books. Yeah. And then because Keller Williams was this growth rocket, and I was kind of a creative collaborator with Gary, who's at the center of all of it, 
I've worn a lot of hats. So I've run our education and training on three separate occasions. Uh, I think for a total of about eight years. Okay. But each time he wanted me to bring like my book mind to our, and I love training now to the training at different times. Uh, I've run our research. I've launched a bunch of other departments. Like today, my title is not even publishing. It's I'm in charge of strategic content because I'm also running our podcast strategy and working with our video and film and media department. But I would just tell you, I'm applying the same handful of disciplines that I learned as a writer and a publisher just to different mediums. Um, I'm still kind of doing my one thing, yeah. but I get to do it in different arenas, which as for the entrepreneur in me, that keeps it fresh. Yeah. But I'm also still kind of doing the mastery thing. Yeah. So I think those I think are the big roles. For a lot of us, I think we 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 have to learn how to develop that if it's not natural, that doing the one thing in different arenas. Um, but that one thing still kind of keeps your foundation somehow and your sanity as an entrepreneur a lot of times. So you don't feel like you're just doing way too much in many different places. But well, we we all have uh, a unique advantage that we either cultivate or we kind of showed up with. Yeah. And we'd all be wise not to neglect it. For sure. Right. Completely and uh, so I, I, I catch myself sometimes getting excited about things that I shouldn't probably be doing. So I'm, yeah. I'm, I wrote the book, but I'm not perfect. But for the most part, even when I've launched other businesses, when we've I've co-founded them and launched them, Gary's always been very clear. It's like, you have your one thing. Go find someone for whom this is their one thing. And that's his partnership and agreements. Like, he's like, how do we succeed through others? That's really business. Yeah. Right. If you're doing it and if you stop doing it, you stop getting paid. That's a job. Even if it's under an entity, you're self-employed. And so, like, how do we turn these into true businesses where, you know, you can be the chairman of the board or a board member for a lot or an owner for a lot of things mm -hmm. and apply a philosophy to them and still have a, a be very successful, quote, in your job? Yeah. Yep, completely. I think that's a good segue to move us into talking about the one thing. Um, I've been a, a, a fan of this mindset for a long time, even before I knew about the book. Um, I started a blog, I think, in 2011 called The One Effect. And I would write, wow. right, I know. And I would write about like um, people doing one, th one thing in their life that could change it all. And so, and then I would... Uh, uh, create these charity adventure trips where we would do cool things like I'd walked across Spain to raise money to build a home for slave children in Ghana. Um, we went down to Costa Rica and climbed the tallest mountain to raise money for uh, children with developmental disabilities. So it was it was it was working on the one thing mindset, you know, way back in 2011. Um, it didn't turn into it, it was a really fun project, but it didn't turn into a successful, profitable one. And eventually I got to the point where I started some other one things in my life and uh, that were more profitable and I had to, to kind of move away from that. Um, but I'm definitely a fellow life optimizer for that mindset. Can you uh, briefly just give us the philosophy of the one thing, Jay, and why exactly you guys wanted to bring this idea to the world? Sure. Uh, I love that. That's your history too. And yeah. I'll just share, like I'll jump out of order a little bit. We have a, a training company and do some corporate training around the book. That was one of the things I had to hire someone to do. I, I could have done it, mm -hmm. but I tried to stay in my lane and it made it happen slower. But six and a half years later, it's bigger. But okay. when I talk to people that are hiring us for a keynote or training, um, 
a lot of people like they pick it up in the airport, but they're like you, they're like, oh, wait, this is they're what they're doing is they're illustrating something that I've intuitively done or known, but they're making, I think it wasn't original to us, like the, all the ideas, but I think we created an original and approachable and a practical way for people to try to live it. So right. the idea of the one thing, if we called it just focus, stupid, like nobody would have bought it. <laughs> I don't know. I, w- I might've bought something like that. <laughs> but it's like, uh, we, we toyed around with the title, the success habit. This was yeah. long before Duhigg and all the habit books or James clear, right? We published, yeah. we wrote, we started in 20, 2009 and published in 2013. Yeah. And so a lot of research went into it. But the basic idea is that you don't need a different approach to success in all the different areas of your life. Identify at any given moment what the number one priority is and give your top priority truly the majority of your time and resources. Mm -hmm. And it's not uh, priority, literally, if you go to the Latin, means first, it's singular. Right. But we, we talk all the time about having priorities, Jeez. which is really strange. And I get it. Like, I'm a parent, and I'm also a son. I've got aging parents. Yes, okay, I have f- a lot of firsts in my life, mm-hmm. but I have to have a process for knowing today, this week, this month, what's the real priority if I want to achieve my goals. Okay. And I think we gave people a framework for doing that so that they could to me, the biggest gift that I hear from people is when they finally understand what they should be saying yes to, it makes saying no to the other stuff a lot easier. Right. And um, they feel more confidence and conviction and clarity when they kind of are doing that thing. And it doesn't take long for people to start kind of feeling this exponential kind of growth that can naturally happen when you make small deposits over a long period of time. Yeah. And this time, like uh, my partner, Jeff, uh, he does our other podcast. He says, you know, like the language he brought to me, which I love is like, is we're, it's like investing, but we're teaching people instead of spending their time, how can they invest their time? Yes. Right. And have it compound for them. And I'm like, yes. well, as someone who likes finance, I love that. <laughs> um, so what came up for me real quick, Jay, the question is, uh, you, you talked about spending the majority of your time on the one thing. How much is that for you? Four hours a day, six hours a day, eight hours a day. Um, I know that can vary with probably your schedule and, and all the things you have going on in your life. But what what would be the goal for you on an uh, average day, putting how many hours into the one thing? Uh, my one thing is writing and research. Okay. Right. So I do research. Like I think of that as inputs that feed the outputs. Okay. I'm not writing fiction where I just need creative space. Like I actually have to do research so I can try to make connections that maybe other people miss. And that's interviews. So uh, on any given week, and I, I you've met Carly, my EA, um, I try to have a minimum of three, four hour blocks. The reality is like, Man, if I could go back in time to when I was a teenager, think of all the time we wasted playing video games and stuff, right? <laughs> right. Like we did have a much more flexibility, but the nature of running is some businesses and I understand the opportunity cost. That's a, if I can hit three to four of those blocks, right? A week, I'm usually making enough progress to feel really good about my week and my month. And it's, it, it is sporadic. Like you get knocked off 
habit, like you go to a convention, you kind of fall out. That That is normal, but I have my coach. I have a number of writing days per year. I'm looking at my goals right now. Uh-huh. Like this year, like I've defined 140 writing days on my calendar and I've got 26 year to date. Mm-hmm. I'm slightly behind pace, but we also just wrapped up a convention with 19,000 people, which I was on stage for a lot of it. So it's going to, I will flex forward and make adjustments to try to hit that goal. But that when I looked at my goals, I kind of said, if I can get a minimum of 140 writing days, and that to me is that four hour block, there's no way I can write all day. It's too exhausting. Yeah. I was like, I'll, I'll be on track for my goals. And so it is, it is moved a little bit. When I was running our university uh, the last time, I went from having seven employees, that a lot of them being leaders, to having, I think, 64 people in my org chart. Mm-hmm. And that one of the reasons we agreed that I needed to get back out is I started seeing myself falling behind my writing blocks. Um, so that's, that's usually the first question my coach is supposed to ask me. Where are you? Where are you on pace for your month and your year? Like, that's the... I choose to be accountable to that goal because I know a lot of the things I want to happen in my life. That's where yeah. it goes. When, when Gary and I were writing together, I'll show you at, at our best, we block from 10 to four, four days a week. Okay. And it's a little bit different than we talk about in the book. What we use, cause we both are running multiple businesses. We, uh-huh. we offer up those prime real estate, eight to 10. I mean, that is very productive time with very few distractions. Mm-hmm. What we found is we go to our leaders early in the day. We call it clearing the decks. Hey, I'm checking in, Chris. What's on your radar? What's your one thing? What do you need help from? We could prevent people from knocking on the writing room door at noon. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. And doing the you got a minutes and get a really big block of time to go into our creative world. And we did that at one point for almost three years straight. Okay. What's realistic for you, Jay, on hitting your goals? Um, I've been tracking goals for 13 years now. Um, realistic for me is because I usually set four different goals in different areas of my life per quarter, uh, mental, spiritual, emotional, and physical. And realistic for me is like 60 to 80% success rates on their goals. I don't hit 100% all the time. Unless I'm really bogging down on something. And when I bog down on something to focus on that, to get a hundred percent, quite often it takes a little bit away from the other goals. How's that work out for you? I don't know that our philosophies are going to show up where we can actually do apples to apples. Okay. So in our framework and when we, I'm coaching someone in my world, uh, I think that there's activities and outcomes. Okay. So. I want to set a goal to hit a hundred percent of the activities I felt like would yield the outcomes that I wanted. Makes sense. Okay. I can't control the outcomes. Right. So I tend to be kind of a, a hard one hard. I don't know what your, is it PG 13, but hard no. a, whatever you want to say, hard, but about hard like, ass, yeah. did we That's do? Fine. Yes. Thank you. Uh, did we do the activities that we needed to do? Yes. Now, we have higher priorities. Like I'm a parent. If my kids are sick, I'm going home. I did. Yeah. I miss a writing day. I don't feel bad about it, but I will go back to my calendar and I will cancel other things like podcasts to get back on track. And there is no guarantee that the creative output will be there. If I'm making sales calls, like if I think it takes a hundred sales calls to close three deals, but this month I did a hundred and got two, 
I hope over time that next year I might do a hundred calls and do four, but I'm going to start adjusting the activities if my conversion rates are moving. Okay. Um, but yeah, I, that makes I, much more sense. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's like, that's why I don't always focus on the outcomes. Like I'm playing a long game. Yeah. Right. My goals are my goals. Uh, until I'm a public company and I have to meet quarterly estimates where I, there's that, that level of accountability. Um, I'm playing a long game. I want to have a great career. I love stacking great years on top of each other, but I think that's overrated. Just that mindset in, in of itself, playing the long game is, is so beneficial for, for building a company and, and building a business. Um, I, I was selling on Amazon in 2009 and then I looked in 2019, I looked back on my life and I was like, what was I doing 10 years ago that could have put me in a much different position than where I am now? And I did, I sold on Amazon for like, I don't know, five or six months. And I was like, this stuff doesn't work. Let me move into something else, you know? And I mean, 10 years at that time on it, selling on Amazon could have, you know, been amazing, uh, completely different career wise. But um, I want to kind of go through the principles, Jay, of the book, the core principles. One thing that stood out for me was the focusing question. Yeah. And if you don't mind just taking a few minutes to kind of dive into that and let the listeners know more about what that is and why it's important. Oh, fantastic. Uh, it's weird. It's not at the very beginning of the book. It is kind of at the heart of the book, though. But if I think if we told people it was that simple, they wouldn't have believed us. They would have thrown the book away if that was like in the first chapter. But hopefully we've built enough credibility by the time you get there that you're like, oh, okay, this is, it could be this simple and this does do the job. So the focusing question is what's the one thing I can do such that by doing it, everything else will be easier or necessary. And when Gary and I were outlining the book, we, we usually start our book writing process by asking what is the number one outcome we want from the reader? Are we going to change the way they act, behave, they think? And the, our goal, having already lived with versions of that question before the book, were like, can we just get people to build the habit of asking the question, right? Start living on a habitual basis, like checking in, are my priorities in order? Am I doing the real priority or am I distracted right now? And asking that question, it's a very powerful question. It's very long-winded, right? But it gets you to a very good answer. So the 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 origin story, and, and it's so weird. We cut so much out of the book in the last months. We, we went from over 440 pages to like 220 in the last three months of our editing process. But we the origin story is when Gary was first consulting and coaching with our top franchisees and agents. If you've had a coach, you know this rhythm. At the end of the coaching call, you make commitments. Hey, Chris, so between now and next week, what are you going to get done towards your goals? And you might go A, B, C, and D. And in Gary's experience, the vast majority of people came back and they might have done B, C, D, and E, but not A. The, the number one often got neglected for lesser priorities. And out of frustration, he'd be like, okay, if you can only do three things, and they still wouldn't do it. If you only do two things, well, I did B, but not A, right? He finally, it was actually in frustration. If you can only get one thing done between now and next Monday to move you forward in your goals, what is the one thing that I know that you'll, you, you agree to, we're committing to, you're going to get done. And what he discovered, right, out of this frustration of getting people to try to tackle what they both agreed was number one priority is when people only had one thing on their to-do list, 
They almost always did it. There's no place to hide. So it's built-in accountability. And the other magical thing was people tended to do B, C, D, and E naturally after they'd done it. It's kind of like you're coasting. You know, Eat That Frog, the other book out there, right? You know, you've done the, the, the hard work, the necessary work, and now you just naturally check those boxes. So over the years, the focusing question just kind of organically, what's the one thing I can do such that by doing it, everything else is easier or necessary? And it's surprisingly powerful. Um, I was very afraid when we were writing the book all those years that people would ask questions and they just wouldn't know. And afterwards, I've taught tens of thousands of people now. I think most people, um, when they ask the question, the answer is almost always very clear. And they might even feel guilty because we're so busy and preoccupied with being busy that we're not asking. And so we're neglecting priorities. And it's like that moment where you get to snap back and go, oh, crap, right? I need to actually focus a little bit more on this part of my life or I'm going to have real regrets later. So yeah. That's the focusing question. It's kind of the driver at the heart of our whole process. Besides um, you hiring a coach to hold uh, oneself accountable, do you have any other thoughts on how an individual can do that on their own to focus and to make sure to ensure that they're knocking out that one thing every week? Uh, there's a lot of forms of accountability. Like what I found in our research, it was so common. I wasn't even sure it belonged in the book, mm -hmm. but the bookends of all big success teams tend to start with some form of mindset, right? There's yeah. this, this belief that it's possible for you and on the other side, accountability. And so we'll, we'll just tackle the accountability side. Uh, I remember the first time I paid for a coach, you know, like a lot of them started a thousand dollars a month and that right. was a big investment. Um, but I look at it, nobody, we're adults. The reality is no one is holding us accountable. Right. We're choosing to be accountable. Right. So if you're willing to put your goals in writing and you choose to be accountable, you can pick any sort of peer partner out there. Hey, Chris, let's get together once a week and let's just be accountable. I'm going to tell you what my priorities are and you check in with me next week. And you get to, you know, drag me through the mud, you know, make me hold up the mirror if I haven't done it. And there is really good research. We put it in the book. It's kind of at the back that a really light form of accountability when people were required to email biweekly their progress towards goals mm -hmm. to a neutral party, they were 76% more likely to achieve them. Yeah, that's a great one. That's Just great knowing one. that you have to tell somebody whether you did it or not makes people really want to do it. Right. Um, and so that's like the, that's a very low form of accountability in terms of how much you could cheat it. You could just lie. Right. Yeah. Um, but the researchers found that people were actually much more likely twice as likely than just writing them down. So I would just encourage people if you really want the goals to happen, right. Who can you choose to be accountable? Can you find a, a accountability partner out there? And what I find is when you start that journey, you, you eventually you look up and go, I want a higher level. I want someone who could not only bring accountability to my life, but when I'm really lost can help me get perspective on where I'm going and why I'm going there. And that's what I think the higher level coach does is that they they're trained, they have technique, 
um, and they can help illuminate things that we're lost on. Yeah. But yeah, for those startup people out there, don't go dropping $5,000 checks. Yeah. Right. Not yet. But you can choose to be accountable. And what I find is a lot of people aren't actually accountable. Yep. You know, and I think part of the problem with that is a, a lot of people aren't, people don't, we don't learn how to create habits in school when we're young, unless you have amazing parents or an amazing coach or mentor or teacher when you're young. Uh, we're just learned information. You know, they teach us information and put it in our brains. A, a, any school that teaches a young child how to create habits, that that skill will apply to the rest of their lives. And the simple thing of like creating a habit of maybe uh, eating the way that you want to, uh, exercising the way that you want to, you know, going after your dreams, whatever it may be. And, and it is so simple to email somebody twice a week to get a 76.7, I think that's what you said, percent. I think that's right. I, yeah. I, I, sadly, uh, I'm the worst person to quote my own book. That's Let's okay. just call that's it 60, okay. <laughs> 76%, right? 76, yes. 77%. Yeah, more likely to achieve a goal. And it's so simple. One of the things that, that, that I've done in the past, and it worked really well, and I should probably do this more often, is just posting on Facebook my goal. And when I post on Facebook, I know that a bunch of my friends saw what I said I was going to do. And my chances, my or and when I've done that in the past, it has been significant. Like, it's like, oh, yeah, of course, I'm going to follow through. I told all my friends on Facebook. Can I coach you on that though? Yeah, please go ahead. Permission. All right. Yeah. So that when I, when we were looking for this research, mm -hmm. uh, there is this weird phenomenon. Now I, this probably doesn't speak to you because you're, you've got a history of achievement, right? So you, you've figured out this accountability thing. Yeah. In general though, the research shows that when people say I'm going on a diet, they get so much validation from the support that everyone gives that they have less motivation to achieve the goals. So it actually ends up being a detractor, Okay. right? What you want when you're trying to lose 30 pounds that you gained in COVID is that weekend when someone goes, dang, you've lost some weight. You look right. great, right. right? That's the reward you're hoping for. When you post it on Instagram or social media, you get so much of that dopamine. It actually in some ways works against you. Interesting. So I, I think that accountability, it can be public but it doesn't need to be a reward in the sharing. Yeah. So I'll share, like we chose, uh, when my son was in fourth grade and our daughter, uh, was in, our youngest was in second grade, uh, we moved them out of our school. They weren't flourishing, they were doing fine, but there's a small school that started here in Austin called the Acton Academy that's now blown up. But uh, it's funny, when I first walked in to meet the guides, they had the one thing. So I was like, okay, that's a good sign. <laughs> right. Uh, but it's like Montessori based, but like uh, yeah. one of the elements that they, they didn't did, know you were coming into the school. Did they, they were like, let's put this no, up on the <laughs> No, no. They, yeah. uh, we just went in and we wanted to see the kids. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, they start every day with a Socratic discussion. Right. Nice. And it's all about practicing public speaking, whether they know it or not. Right. Just having a group discussion. And Socratic discussion is not about answers, it's about asking great questions and yeah. getting people to think and debate. And after that, everyone goes to a public space and they write down their goals for the day. Mm -hmm. And they end the day with a quick check-in on how everyone did. Okay. And so that's a form of public accountability where you've shared with a group of people that you have a, a pact around, right? And there's also like the guide so Chris, how did you do today? Well, I read three out of four chapters. Mm -hmm. 
there's now going to be debate about whether that constitutes success or not. And so like, yes, as teachers, as parents, as partners, that's why a lot of sales teams like public scoreboards actually do work Mm -hmm. because it also gets people into their competitive gene. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, in the book, they, they outline, you guys outline four thieves of productivity, inability to say no, fear of chaos, poor health habits, uh, environment doesn't support your goals. So could we, could we, uh, elaborate more on that, Jay? And especially I think for a lot of people they have, well, we don't, a lot of people don't understand the fear of chaos, but also have a challenge with saying no to people and because they're people pleasers, right? So yeah, please yeah. go ahead. So like I, once you get it right, you, you're going to work. We didn't go into working backwards from your goals, but that's like a big part of our puzzle, right? Mm -hmm. You, you start out in the future and based on that, what are you going to do this year, this month, this week? So I've got my kind of fine line about my top level goals and I'm trying to live it. So now that we have our approach to productivity, these are the four things that we identified in our coaching and training have seen that kind of undo people and they're actually in order. Okay. So uh, the the most common behavioral assessment out there for like on the DISC is an ISC, right? That's a huge percentage of people start off and they're people oriented, that I, high I, and go to any one of them. That's a very common thing. So saying no to people is hard when you care about what people think about you. Yeah. And you talk about things we weren't trained in in high school or grade school is how to be appropriate around how we say no to people we care about. So we identified it as the number one. If you are a people pleaser or and on that scale, you may struggle with delaying or saying no to people so that you can do your one thing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I've taught whole classes on this. I'll, I'll give you like, for me, the number one ha- hack is avoid having to say no. That's what we have okay. a whole section on, on, like go to your bunker where people can't ask you for things or to do so things, turn to. off your social media. So you don't yeah. have to say no, you're just inaccessible. Yeah. Right. I know a lot of people who are really productive on an airplane. Yeah. That's, that's me. great. You don't have <laughs> the internet me. usually. And right. There's nobody that, you know, that's going to distract you. So, uh, and you've got like a three foot window in your visual orientation. So you might as well read that dead gum book. Yes. That's right. So that that's an environment. Like you can create an environment that reduces how many no's you have to bring to your life. And the other one's uh, strategy for me is like, we time block our calendar. So we make commitments to ourselves. And when people ask us to break those commitments, we have a standard script. So you mm-hmm. asked me, you, you played this game with my assistant. Hey, uh, is Jay available from 10 to 12 on this day? Um, if I look at my calendar and that's my writing time, what I'm going to say back is, hey, Chris, I'm so sorry. I already have another commitment at that time. Right. Would it be possible for us to do it? You're, you're giving them an alternate yes, right? That's my number one time, but I'm going to give you a time that does work that I can still get my one thing done. And most people, if you try to do it tactfully, they don't care. They just want to get on your calendar. Yeah. So you can maneuver them. But if you tell them I'm working alone by myself for that hour, most people will say, well, can't you do it another time? Mm-hmm. So the key to that strategy is just saying, I have a commitment at that time. Could we do it at this time? And the other one is to put a barrier, you know, to say, great, would you like, I, I've got a 
script that I can just type a few letters on text because people are always asking me to make commitments on social media and on text. Right. And I just, here's a little barrier. Hey, um, I'd love to explore it. Send me an email to here and I'll discuss it with my yay and we'll get back to you. Half the people don't even email me. It was just a flight of fancy. They thought they'd throw something out there, but I'm trying to move it out of a zone where I have very little visibility on my goals and into one where I can say, well, man, my calendar's full. We can't do this for weeks mm -hmm. versus making a really quick decision because that text is going to go unmarked and I can't mark it unmarked again. Right. You know, like texts don't work well. So I just try to avoid it. And if you put a barrier, send me an email. Hey, can we uh, get together? And if you would make a formal proposal, I'm happy to consider it. A lot of people aren't convicted enough around their time to do a very simple and reasonable ask before they take your time. Yeah. And you're not saying no. Like it's the same as a parent. Hey, if you will just sit quietly and eat your vegetables, we get to go to Disneyland, right? You're just cutting a deal. If this, then that. So there's some right. quick strategies and just being aware of it, right? Yeah. Um, chaos is for people like me. Um, I'm not as people oriented. I'm actually a massive introvert that's okay. learned to socialize because I know it's necessary, but it takes energy for me. And for me, like I want things to be done right. Right. I want the, the, I go by a bookshelf and I start straightening the books without even being aware of it. <laughs> and a reality is if you're chasing your one thing and you're giving it disproportionate time and resources, you're going to have a lot of messy stuff in your life. Mm-hmm. And you have to make peace with that. It's Einstein's messy desk, right? It's, it's, you just have to. And I'm not naturally predisposed. So I think on those first two, there are probably people that suffer from neither or both. But okay. I find people tend to say one or the other. Statistically, people are more likely to have the no problem than the chaos problem, yeah. right? Yeah. So um, I was like the kid that put his socks in the hamper. I mean, I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm OCD. So that's, that, that's my big one. Yeah. And that is more of an act of faith. And okay. like I told you, our strategy around time blocking, I w if I can clear the decks, right, I'm going to go ahead and like, if it was a forest fire, I'm going to go trim the underbrush. Okay. So it's less likely to really get bad. And then I'm going to go do my thing. Yeah. So I give myself, I call them sanity breaks. Yeah. You know, I, I go into email at the beginning of the day. I usually have like a 30 minute block in the middle of the day. And then I do it before I go home. And I know that because I've got that 30 minutes to triage, I can wait another hour. It's like, okay, I know that nothing's going to blow up for another hour. I'm going to wait until I get to my appointed time. Yeah. So those are some strategies around that. Yeah. Um, health. I yeah. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say, uh, I have to have an organized work environment before I start work. If things are a little out of place, even the, the, the smallest thing, I'm like, nah, to be in my, to get in my flow states much easier. This thing cannot be here. I've got to like structure that. So at least my work environment the outside of the work environment door could be chaos, you know, but in, in yeah. my work environment, I've got my harmony. And, um, yeah, and that helps me incredibly. Um, I think it's a unique formula for a lot of people. Yeah, it is. I've, I've literally talked to people that are most productive, like in a conference room. Yeah. I had one lady that helped me write a whole manuscript by going into the basement. Like mm. she just couldn't even be close to a computer or yeah. she would distract herself. Yeah. Um, yeah. the Heath brothers, I don't know if you've read their books, but uh -uh. they're great. One of them 
Like the only way he could ever write a book is he got a laptop. They pulled out the Wi-Fi card so it could not connect to the internet. And then he would go to a cafe where he could not get on email. He could not do any of those things. And he was like, it's smart. like that was his version of an airplane without Wi-Fi. Yes, smart, very smart. So if you're focused on it, you can figure out, here's the formula where I can get to that flow state quickly. Yeah. Do we do we want to go through the the, the third and fourth, or we can I, leave that as a mystery? I, I'm happy. I would like, yeah, I would like to test briefly on environment doesn't support your goals. Um, this was a big aha for me. Um, I was reading, I think, a documentary on not documentary. Um, um, uh, what's a book that's a biography on uh, Martin Luther King? <laughs> yeah, and um, one of his quotes was, "Environment is stronger than willpower." And when I first heard that, it kind of shocked me. And then I apply, I, I tested it over the years, and it's by far so incredibly true. And and you guys talk about environment doesn't support your goals. So you know, let's let's elaborate on that. Just I just wrote down that quote. That's a great quote. It's I'm a really good use one, that. Right? That's yeah. great. Yeah. Um, well, we identified this actually came from Gary's experience. This wasn't something that we 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 managed to go out and find some actual research. Mm -hmm. But when Gary was a broker. Um, at that time in history, those early 80s and 70s, like a lot of women went into the workforce and were building their careers. Remember Working Woman? I don't know if you saw that. There's like nine to five. Like there's that, there was an era and that really represented where women went back to the workforce in mass. And there's yeah. great research that shows that they came out of the 50s where there was a breadwinner and a homemaker. Yeah. And when there were two breadwinners, guess who still got the homekeeping job? The woman. The woman did. Yeah. And that created a lot of stress. Now, to our credit, I would like to think that a lot of us have recognized that and we've tried to make the world a better place. And I think there has been real progress. Yeah. But when people talked about a lack of work-life balance, that almost uniquely was borne by women in the beginning. Mm. And um, so you look up and the, these, these, the, the prototype of a realtor, I think it's a 55 year old woman. It still is the core demographic. Okay. These people are coming into the office and they're crying because their home environment did not support their business goals. They literally would have a spouse saying, I'm, I don't care what you do. As long as I've, I got a meal waiting for me hot on the table when I get home. <laughs> and there was like this mindset and that sounds very ogreish, And I even hate saying it because I don't want to throw every there are enlightened dudes out there. I don't want to throw every. It was very that true. Was, it was, it was I very saw it true. in my family. I saw it growing up for sure. hundred percent. Yeah. And so you look up and there's this thing and the, their environment was actively working against them. Yeah. So I think the people we surround ourselves with first and foremost, are either going to put wind in your sails or to deflate you on a daily basis. hundred mm, percent. And we kind of know very intuitively who's in our corner. I remember as I was first like starting to invest in real estate, invest in business and build businesses, like I was hanging out with this creative tribe. We were writers and writers can be really neurotic and embarrassed about being success, right? The moment you become a success, you risk being called a sellout. Right. And I remember like the moment I started not wanting to talk about our successes with some of my friends, I realized I was spending too much time with the wrong people. Mm. I can still love these people and want to spend time with them, but I'm, I'm going to be a little bit more measured. And Wendy and I, my wife and I, we've, we've tried to be purposeful and always looking to kind of upgrade, you know, a little bit every so often, I would rather be the dumbest person in the room. 
Me too. Right. And the least successful. And then I'm forced to play up and learn, learn, learn. I'm really happy in that role. I still like to teach people, but I want to be in environments that force me to grow. Yeah. And uh, it can be exhausting being in the other environments. And so like people is very important. Uh, and the other one is your physical environment. You're already speaking to that. Like you kind of know there's a formula for your physical environment. And we have a whole section on finding a bunker and all that in the book, but it's just this idea. A bunker is a protected place where you can focus on your thing. Yeah. I struggled like uh, the pandemic was not good to me. Uh, as soon as I could, I safely came back to the office. I tend to be more productive with witnesses mm. when I'm at home. I can rationalize like, oh, I love my wife. My family's more important than my business. And I love my wife. And man, she would really appreciate it if I did the dishes right now. And like, I mean, I could you'd find me mowing the yard, right? I mean, I'm just like, I could rationalize how that was a higher priority and I would just be procrastinating. Yeah. But I tend to be highly productive in an office environment, a little less so in a cube, but like if I've, I've got a small office now with all my books, like, dude, I'm set. I can really dive in and get a lot of work done. And I think that is unique to, that's a product of training. You can train yourself to work in any environment, but if we're adults, we've probably figured out some hacks. Like I know people that program, they just, they could be anywhere as long as they have a set of noise canceling headphones. Yeah. Right. So what is your formula? That's your environment. But I actually think the first part, you know, who are the people that you spend the most time with and are they, are they helping you grow or are they holding you back? It's so key. people don't like to be passed. Yeah. And the moment they see that, whether they're, they're not trying to hurt you, but they'll say things like, that's risky, Chris. That's risky. Don't do that. And yeah, as an entrepreneur, as someone who wants to build and make an impact, like you have to be willing to step past that. And hopefully you found a tribe that is absolutely there and like, go for it, telling you to go for it when it's appropriate to go for it. I'm so fortunate I have, and I encourage anybody else to do that. We got one more question, Jay, and we're going to wrap up um, real quick. What, what do you feel sets you apart from the average individual by all the things that you do, the, the success you've accomplished? What is, what is it that sets you apart from the average guy or gal out there? Well, I'm going to acknowledge that I've been, I've benefited from a lot of luck and some of that I may have, help put myself in a place to take advantage of it. Mm -hmm. But I think the first thing is like, I don't quit easily. Um, and sometimes to my detriment, I'll keep watching a horrible movie or reading a horrible book. <laughs> I'm optimistic. Maybe it'll get better. Right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I tend to, 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 to give relationships maybe longer than I should sometimes. Mm -hmm. Right. In business. Um, but that also that long game that I mentioned earlier, that, that ability to endure for a long time and grind it out. Uh, I had some formative moments with my dad where he saw me quit and he just told me he was disappointed. And uh, that was very impactful for me. Mm. It's like, nope, I'm not gonna be that person. I'm gonna keep going. And that can be harmful. Like you hear the emotion, like yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> all these years later, but like, yeah, I don't wanna quit. Like I, I really have to, a lot has to happen and I have to strategically quit sometimes think, think it's good, but I think that is my superpower. Yeah. When everybody else is willing to give up, I'm going to come back another day. And just like you talked about with your Amazon store, people quit so close to the magic. Yeah. 
So anyway, uh, that's me. I, I'm the, that guy that makes little investments and plays the compound interest game. And I'm going to play it for a long time, but I'm investing my time. I love that. I love that. Jay, we're going to wrap up. I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I've everything you've talked about, we could do this for another hour and a half. Maybe we'll do Truly. it a few more years, like you know, <laughs> a couple of years down the road. Um, but I've, I've, it's been an honor to have you on the show. Um, your mindset is amazing. Your success is amazing. I recommend anybody going to get the book. The one thing I promise you're going to learn something about yourself and how to be more productive and focused in your life and create more success. Um, if the listeners want to reach out, Jay, and learn more about what you have going on, or uh, where's the best place they can do that at? What's really nice is I believe I'm the only human being, maybe on the planet, but certainly in the United States, with the name J-A-Y-P-A-P-A-S-A-N, Jay Papasan. <laughs> awesome. Google's going to correct you, and um, though I'm not super responsive, I still do all of my own social media. My assistant helps me a little bit on LinkedIn because business happens there. Yeah. But they can find me. And if they want to find out more about the one thing, I just say go to the one thing.com. Um, and we've got all kinds of great free resources. If you can't afford the book or you're still waiting for it at the library, there's all kinds of videos and resources there for people to learn more. Awesome. Jay, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. Listeners, we want to thank you guys for tuning in. We're going to wrap up there and see you all on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. Hey listeners, thanks for joining us. And once again, we wanted to remind you about our adventures and trips for entrepreneurs in our private community. If you enjoy luxury trips to the Caribbean, going on bucket list adventures around the world, or just traveling to connect with other established entrepreneurs, then be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to stay connected at thebusinessmethod.com. That's thebusinessmethod.com. Thanks for joining the show today, and we'll see you on the next episode.